listening to the Broken Mirrors podcast, providing a unique set of views in the larger foreign policy and intelligence and security milieu. This episode, Terrorism, Fear and Insecurity Theatre. And now here are the hosts of Broken Mirrors, Mark and Tom. Welcome to this episode of Broken Mirrors, the Canadian affiliate of War on the Rocks. In keeping with good War on the Rocks traditions, namely inspiration from a bottle of Peller Estates Dry Red, Tom and I take a hard, realist look at terrorism. Broken Mirrors Nil terrible nisi ipse timor Today we're going to be talking about terrorism. But unlike many of the discussions in the area, we actually want it to be scientific and rigorous about it, which is why the initial quote you just heard was from Francis Bacon, the founder of empirical science. If your Latin is rusty, the translation is, nothing is terrible except fear itself. Terrorism, as it should be known, is a tactic chosen by rational individuals, and it employs fear as its desired weapon and tactical end state. It is seeking to send a message or effect change. Well, Mark, the 9-11 attacks and the recent attack on the Westgate Mall in Kenya were roughly 12 years apart, but they're perceived of as being part of the same overall Al-Qaeda-inspired wave of terrorism violence. It's interesting to note that 20 years ago we had the World Trade Center bombings, and it's been 17 years since Bin Laden declared war on America the first time. It's been 15 years since the U.S. Embassy attacks in Africa and 13 years since the attack on the USS Cole. Are we engaged in any meaningful way which will allow us to prevail or win in this campaign struggle? Do we know what winning and losing looks like at the strategic, operational, and tactical level? How would you go about understanding or explaining this kind of issue? Well, Tom, I think one of the first things we have to do is play historian for a minute. Put it in historical context. Terrorism has a very, very long history. It goes back at least 5,000 years, and probably well before then. It's always aimed around one simple tactical reality, the inducement of fear through the use of force or the threat of force. So what we're aiming at when we're running a terrorist campaign is to produce that fear response. The weapons may have changed over time from knives, clubs, spears, arrows, swords, then bombs, guns, to airplanes, but it's still there, and it's still the same tactic with the same end. And I think we have to understand the modern terrorist campaigns in that historical context. Well, Mark, I think you're right to note terrorism is a tactic, and it's perceived of as a rational choice by the attacker. As a tactic, I think terrorism can be used by individuals, groups, and some would argue states. It is, in short, quite scalable from one individual who carries out one attack to any size group with an extended series of attacks. Right, Tom. What we're looking at is what the lawyers refer to as a mens rea. There has to be an intentionality on the person of the attacker to produce that fear response. Now, that fear response itself operates in a number of ways. It could be based on a single immediate event. Let's say uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center. Or it could be a long-lasting and pervasive campaign, such as a classic intimidation campaign or even an indoctrination campaign, where you're too terrified as a populace or group to speak out against something going on. Well, Tom, I'm going to play academic for a bit. 
The actual evocation of the fear response in the target population is neither a sufficient nor a necessary condition for an attack to be called a terrorist attack. For example, Pearl Harbor did invoke fear, but the intent was to commit an act of war and cripple the U.S. fleet and was very much a military target. 9-11, although often compared to Pearl Harbor, was not seen as an act of war and clearly fell into the category of a terrorist strike, even if Osama bin Laden had declared war ahead of time. The intent of 9-11 was to strike at iconic or symbolic targets. Twelve years on, 9-11 can be seen as more effective than Pearl Harbor. Imperial Japan was crushed in four years. Now, in 2013, Al-Qaeda continues to instill fear in America and reshape America in its own image and likeness. What we will focus on today is not military force-on-force campaigns or state-level attacks, but rather terrorism campaigns carried out by groups. Well, Mark, responding to an attack is a little more difficult than maybe it sounds. You have to be able to analyze and contextualize the attack to determine the response. First, you have to be able to identify the opponent and then figure out an appropriate response to that specific set of circumstances. Let's look at the Roman response to the Sicarii. When they were faced with this problem, they chose to surround Jerusalem, and then they just watched and waited while their opponents tore themselves apart. (laughs) Never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake. That's right, Mark. That's exactly what Napoleon used to tell us. Mark, I think it's important to note that the U.S. response to 9-11, up to the invasion of Iraq, was actually working. But more importantly, the Muslim world itself was physically and intellectually dismantling and denigrating Al-Qaeda, and its adherents. It can be argued, successfully I believe, that the Iraq war saved Al-Qaeda by reinforcing and supporting its narrative that all Muslims were under attack all the time and only Al-Qaeda was doing anything to save them. The Iraq war essentially provided Al-Qaeda the opportunity to run that narrative again successfully this time. Since then, they've been able to argue, rightfully or not, that it's only Al-Qaeda that's defending the Muslims around the world. Historically, a campaign of terror can work against the population, at least for a period of time. The Mongols used it, the French Revolution used it, and the Red Campaign of Terror in the Ukraine worked rather well in the early 1920s. It can be argued, and it has by some, that the PLO campaign of violence in the 1970s produced an observer seat for the PLO at the UN and gave it status at the negotiating table. For the IRA, The campaign helped move Ireland towards independence in 1917. The reality is, most terrorism campaigns don't work, however. The Bader-Meinhof group in Germany failed by any meaningful standard. The FLQ campaign in Canada failed badly despite a bombing and kidnapping campaign. The Japanese Red Army faction were not able to achieve any real goals, and Am Shamarikyo failed miserably at the end of the day. When can a terrorism campaign work? Well, it's hard to say, but if a terrorism group is operating within their own cultural norms, they tend to be better prepared. If they are attacking within their own area of understanding, they might be more effective. If they're outside of their cultural area, the effects may be different than the intent. This, of course, brings us to the question of the terrorist narrative. Well, I'm glad you mentioned narratives, Tom, because it's one of the most heard terms and one of the most misunderstood ones on the whole. A narrative is really a story that is grounded in your desired reality and your desired outcome. It has to explain where we are, how we got here, where we want to be, and how we're going to get there. 
but at the same time it has to motivate your own side to follow along with your prescription of how we get there while undermining the opponent. But while we're talking about narratives, Tom, we also have to talk about counter-narratives. Now if a narrative says why we're here, where we want to go and how we're going to get there, a counter-narrative has to say, well, yeah, this is where you are. Where you want to go is either unreachable, unrealistic, or just plain stupid, and how you're going to get there is actually going to make your lives worse. So a counter-narrative is really an offensive form used as a defensive measure. But let's take a look at this in a little more detail. So Tom, what are we missing here? Well, I think the first thing we're missing is that we have been talking about these wars as if they were independent from the narratives. And what we're really doing is we're missing the ideological, the narrative and counter-narrative components of it. At the tactical level, force on force, we're doing really well. At the operational level, not too bad. When it comes to the strategic level, it's going down the tubes in a lot of ways. Without getting into a whole discussion on it, why don't you uh, talk a bit about Zawahiri and how we could easily attack him? Thanks, Mark. I think Zawahiri is worth looking at, and it should be remembered that he was the co-founder of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, as well as being a co-founder of Al-Qaeda, and of course now they're number one. At the root of his ideological message that he puts out to his followers and to the rest of the world is this idea of takfirism, or at least a very virulent form of this. And essentially it allows him, as head of Al-Qaeda, to declare non-believers, in other words non-Muslims, as well as Muslims, takfir, which is to say they're not following the belief structure as he sees it. Therefore, it's okay to kill them. Now, this is a bit bizarre. Zawahiri has appointed himself essentially at the level of prophet by making these kinds of decisions. Clearly within Islam there is the concept of takfir, to be a non-believer, but only Allah is allowed to decide who should die and who should not die because of this. So what we've got is we've got Zawahiri, who is not a Mahdi, he's not a prophet, and to be quite blunt, he's not even a particularly learned man. Certainly not in religious circles, in fact he's an eye surgeon by trade. I think it's worth noting that in a recent article at War on the Rocks, Mark Stout examined his latest writings in an article entitled, Zawahiri, Go Home, You're Drunk. That, I think, is the perfect sort of entree we need to look at. Zawahiri doesn't have the religious qualifications to make the decisions he's making, and he doesn't have the rank, let's say prophet or god, to make these kinds of decisions. If we're looking for an entry point into how to run an effective narrative against this man, there is one place where we could drive a truck through it. Well, Tom, as a thought to close off this segment and before we move into the next one, I think one of the key insights we have to bring out of all of this is that at the strategic level, terrorism cannot win as a tactical preference unless it is extremely well situated within a very compelling narrative. But perhaps more importantly, terrorism works in the initial strategic phase of a campaign to increase popular awareness of the cause but it needs to be reduced later on to support the actual movement. Broken Mirrors In his classic work, The Art of War, Sun Tzu makes an observation about knowing your enemy. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you also suffer defeat.
If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. With apologies to the Right Honourable Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada, now is exactly the time to go all sociological. If we do not know our opponent, and we do not know ourselves, then we are in peril. As Li Chuan commented on the Sun Tzu quote above, such people who do not understand themselves or their opponents are mad bandits. What else can they expect except defeat? Well, Mark, it's fun to note, I was talking to a colleague of mine a while ago who is a terrorism expert and a psychiatrist. And he said, you know, when it comes to terrorism, people's brains immediately shut down. I don't know why yet, but it's almost the same effect that a very pretty girl has on a teenage boy. Well, Tom, when a teenage boy sees a teenage girl, they get a rush of a particular neurotransmitter called oxytocin. Now that is actually just one atom away from OxyContin, which should give you an idea of how powerful it is. When terrorists attack, we get a rush of media doing exactly the same thing, an induced fear response. It's interesting. We see this happen in the media, and we see it happen in politics all the time. Immediately after a terrorist attack, the media starts out with a campaign of, they're crazy, they're fanatics, they're cowards, uh, terrorism is caused by poverty, etc., etc. And then the politicians get involved, and they come out and start saying stuff like, oh, we're going to eradicate terrorism, or the terrorists hate us because they hate our freedom. I think it's worth noting, Mark, that terrorists are not crazy. They are rational actors. In fact, when you take a long, hard look at a group of terrorists, something becomes really interesting. And that simple fact is terrorists suffer from a lower level of mental disease or defect than the populations from which they are drawn. Much the same thing can be said about alcohol consumption or drug use. The scary thing about terrorism, is what I like to tell people, is how incredibly normal most terrorists are. Consequently, we need to get back to looking at the whole issue of narratives again as it affects this. I'm really glad you raised that issue of rationality and the population which a lot of our current terrorists come from, because I think that's a crucial point to bring out. It's perhaps most crucial when we invert it and look at the general popular reaction. So what do we see after a terrorist attack? Well, one of the key things we see coming out is a form of security theater. It gets back to that comment you made earlier about the media coming out, calling them crazies, calling them fanatics, etc., when we actually know they aren't. What we have here is an anti-fear response portrayed literally using drama to say, Big Brother is here watching out for you. Mark, I think it's worth noting the words of Benjamin Franklin one of the writers of the Federalist Papers, and one of the founding fathers of America. He noted that any society that would give up a little liberty to gain a little temporary security will deserve neither and will lose both. He later added that he who gives up freedom for safety deserves neither. And I think that speaks well to the situation where we find ourselves now in an atmosphere of fear. Well, this brings us back again to the response to an attack. We quite often forget it is not the attack that matters. It is your response to that attack that determines the outcome. Terrorists only get power if you give it to them. Fear is their weapon, and fear is their desired end state. If you give in to that fear, you are essentially plugging an amplifier into their propaganda. 
Once again, this brings us back to Sun Tzu. If you know who your adversary is and what the adversary is trying to do to you, in this case, fill you with fear, and if you know yourself and refuse to be filled with fear, then the attack cannot work. If, on the other hand, you don't know yourself and you allow yourself to be filled with fear, as Sun Tzu points out, you're in a lot of trouble. While states need to prevail in the face of a sustained terrorist campaign, that response has to include Franklin's observation. We need to know when the use of terrorism makes sense to certain groups. We need to produce responses in policy and policing that incorporate strong narratives while, at the same time, providing security without infringing on liberty. In short, we need to go all sociological in a sustained manner. Theatre is a wonderful thing, and social theatre is one of the core ways in which we keep our democracies alive. But while we need theatre, we do not need to become bit players in a farcical comedy. We need to write the play we live and not let it be written for us. In our next segment, we're going to get all sociological and talk with Mubin Sheikh, who's lived the narratives on both sides of this problem. Broken Mirrors The rest of the Toronto 18, which followed that of Momen Kawaja, produced a wealth of insights into the radicalization process, especially those folks living within Western societies. One of the sort of themes that comes out of a number of these interviews is the level of knowledge of the faith of these folks tends to be very limited in most cases, and certainly the folks who are, shall we say, quote-unquote, real terrorists, the guys who are actually building the bombs or shooting the guns or whatever, their knowledge tends to be terribly limited. And I think this makes them vulnerable to radicalization in the sense they don't understand the faith. Therefore, when they get fed a couple of cherry-picked lines, they tend to believe it because they have no other choice than to believe that. And much the same could be said for Christianity. I mean, uh, the Timothy McVeighs of the world, who supposedly come from a Christian tradition, uh, you know, you sort of say, well, what part of thou shalt do no murder did you not get? Um, so here's a question for you. If ignorance is the problem, is education the answer? Should we be going into the schools somewhere between kindergarten and grade 12, sitting the kids down once a week or once a month or whatever and saying, look, here's Judaism. This is how it got started. Here's this Abraham dude. This is what this is all about. And then here's Jesus. He forms Christianity through the Pauline tradition, etc., etc. And then we got this guy named Muhammad. Peace be unto him. He creates a religion of Islam. Uh, and then actually teach people the basic tenets of each of the three monotheistic faiths, and it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to run through Hindu, Buddhism, and a few others. So as a defensive measure, do you think that would actually work? Is 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 knowledge the anecdote and ignorance in this case? Yeah, I mean, uh, education is power, right? And I mean, um, you know, Malala Yousafzai, has has done so much to disrupt Taliban influence. If you compare the effects of kinetic operations, like you know, on the ground military operations, they have their they have their limits, right? And and they have their successes as well. It's the same for uh, you know in this context of education. Look, my I'm very operationally minded. Okay, I mean I'm altruistic, yeah, a little bit. You know, I've I've become more of a cynic, <laughs> but. But uh, I'm operationally minded. I believe in the effects of your narratives. Okay, so the the response that we should have, if we're dealing with a an ideology, if we're fighting an ideology, then it follows that we need to fight back with ideas. And secondly, 
if we're dealing with Islamic ideology, then it would then it follows that we respond back with Islamic ideology. For example, when you have people who are saying, "Oh, you know, the, this is what it says, and you got to do this. You have to slay the unbelievers wherever you find them. Lie in wait for them. Use every stratagem of war." You know, this is the verse of the sword, famous verse of the sword. You have to say, okay, well, if that's the document that you're using, we need to we need to think uh, on the basis of like influence and information operations, psyops, really. Uh, if that's the book you're using, then I'm going to use the same book that you claim, because if if that's the you know the Quran that they believe in, they're not going to use any other text. So we need to use the pro-social verses in the Quran against the war tradition verses that are being used. We need to contextualize those verses. For, I'll just give you one quick example. You know, they I used to believe this, okay? So I know what I'm talking about in this in this sense. You know, kill the non-believers wherever you find them, okay? And that's the way the verse is portrayed, translated, and disseminated. But the problem is it doesn't say unbelievers. It says polytheists, okay? Mushrikeen, okay? Polytheists. So wait a second, polytheists, because unbelievers, I mean, Jews and Christians are unbelievers. Heck, the secular Muslim guy over there, he's an unbeliever because he's not Muslim enough. If I use the verse like that, then I can shove everything into it. But if I say, wait a second, the word is actually mushrikeen, polytheists. So that immediately removes Jews and Christians, first of all. And then you say, okay, well, this is verse 20 something in the book, in the chapter, verse uh, chapter 9. Go to chapter, go to verse one, and it's talking about those polytheists that did not keep to their treaties during hostilities. Ah, further context. So this is how we remove the ideological foundation of their hate. Um, on your point of education in the schools, ew, this is a real hot potato, okay? I mean, what's happened is there is such a divide between the religious traditions. People don't even want to give a positive note to Islam. So in some states in the U.S., I've been following some media reports, you know, they, they put, you know, here are the five pillars of Islam. And people responded with, well, we don't want to be indoctrinated with Islam and my kids don't want to be. So we also have to fight against this. I don't want to know about those people. Okay. And, and one of the things that I like is I, I am religious friendly. I mean, I, I, I promulgate the Abrahamic narrative, especially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And my approach, and this is something I think we need to disseminate, is that, listen, the three of us believe in the same God, okay? You can call him what you want, but the fact is there's only one God. Jesus even quoted the Shema of, of the Jews, okay? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Ichad. The Lord our God is one God. So if we can come to that which we unify on, that's at least a start point and then take it from there. Right. But we definitely need to exploit these narratives. And I use the word exploit in the in the military sense, in the operational sense. Okay, yeah. well, this this leads us into a couple of interesting questions, uh, certainly on de-radicalization. And I think Mark's going to step in in a couple of minutes on the, the issue of narrative because that word keeps popping up. But there's a de-radicalization program in Singapore, there's one in Indonesia, the Saudis have one, there's a number of them in the Middle East, there's one in the UK. I'm sitting here thinking as I'm talking to you, talking about de-radicalization, 
Is there a de-radicalization program in Canada? Is there a de-radicalization program in the United States? Because right off the top of my head, I can't think of one. And if there isn't one, why not? I mean, it's been 12 no. years since 9-11. It's been 17 or 18 years since bin Laden declared war on us. What's going on? Canada doesn't have one. The U.S. doesn't have one. Um, you know, I've been studying the topic academically as well as on the ground. And uh, I've been reading a lot about it. I mean, and, and for all it's really all on paper. Um, there, there are no uh, official programs. In Canada, uh, I know the people who are doing it. I'm one of them. Um, Robert Heft, Mohammed Robert Heft is another guy that's been doing excellent work on this. He uses three principles of theological deprogramming, community responsibility, and social assistance, meaning you know getting people uh, employment employment related skills, uh, so on and so forth. Because some of these people, you know, they might have mental health issues, uh, family issues, whatever. So there's nothing official uh, in the U.S. It's the same thing. I don't know why. I cannot for the life of me understand why there isn't. We have really good people. We have good resources. We have very smart people, you know, that can put this stuff, uh, you know, get it going on the ground. Uh, honestly, I'm not exaggerating to you. I'm sure between you and I, we could come up with a program over the weekend. And it's not an exaggeration because uh, we've been dealing with it. We know what it looks like and how it works. So... Uh I don't know what to say on this topic. I don't know why we don't have one this many years later. Actually, you know, I thought you raised a really good point directly on narratives when you were talking about Saladin. And if these people, if these kids are constructing themselves using, you know, historical narratives, historical events, how are they getting around the absolute problem of ignorance and more importantly how are their supposed leaders getting away with faking this why isn't the muslim community trashing them or are they and we're just not hearing about it that's a very good point um one of the ways to get around it is to present to them the evidence and we're nobody's doing this i mean we're, we're not doing this uh like like tom was saying you know the bombs and the arresting and the killing and the fighting i mean it's necessary you you have to at some level, you know, you got to do that. But uh, we, we are not doing the other part of it. And, and I see it as information and influence uh, operations. That, that's the, the, the prism through which I approach this. You know, it, we can weaponize narratives, if you will, uh, to respond directly to them. You have people in the community, in the Muslim communities doing this. But like you said, they don't get the coverage, right? It's the nut jobs that get, you know, the interviews on TV, uh, that get the dissemination in the media. Uh, you know, I have a, a like on YouTube. If you were to check out, you know, Habib Umar, uh, a H A B I B uh, Umar U M A R, the peaceful Muslim. This is a guy who is he, he is a direct descendant of the Prophet peace be upon him. He has millions of followers, and that clip I use it extensively because it it, it has what I call. Sharia compliant public safety narratives. Even this phrase that I used is something that needs to be exploited because everybody else is using Sharia. Sharia, Sharia, Sharia. And as far as we're concerned, that's what chopping off people's heads and arms and stoning women. But you know, there, there's you know such a larger tradition that's not being uh, looked into. So, uh, like you said, you know, how do these people get away with this? And what's happened is you're dealing with a grievance narrative in which 
wars are being fought in Muslim lands. It's very easy to cherry pick and look for only those things that speak to the war that is being fought and not really looking at the whole picture because they've already come to a point where they've decided, look, we're against you. We're against you. And these are the religious uh, aspects that we're going to use in furtherance of our narratives. And, you know, like I said, we are just not uh, we're not using the positive narratives. We need to be engaging those people, organizations, um, credible spokespersons using legitimate Islamic narratives. And they need to be getting they need to have uh, their messages disseminated. They need to be getting the interviews. They need to be brought to, you know, whether it's uh, whatever, you know, uh, function of government, whether it's right at the top of the food chain or, you know, when you bring out people who are perceived to be too moderate, quote unquote, we have to deal with the perceptions as the at risk community has it. OK, before, you know, I mean, I'm sure we believe that they're wrong. We know they're wrong, but we need to go on the basis of what they believe. So if we start using people who are like world renowned Islamic scholars, I mean, what are you going to say? They're too moderate? No. You know, one guy is a descendant of the prophet himself. He's got millions of followers. Right. So these are the people that we need to start um, uh, using, you know, in this sense. We're just not doing it. That's our problem. Well, it's interesting because both humor and, you know, showing suffering, the absolutely non-humorous side of it are really good examples of what we could almost call tactical counter-narratives. Uh, what seems to be missing, because some of the programs seem to be good at the tactical counter-narrative level, but let's get back to the strategic counter-narrative for a second. And there, there comes to be a very interesting, I, I'd call it a problem, who's going to be in charge of the strategic you know, counter-narrative, because quite frankly, I don't think it's the place of any Western government to uh, tell Islam what it should be believing, and I wouldn't trust most Western governments to get it right. Uh, yeah, this is a common uh, common criticism that's made. And uh, if I could just quickly say, look, first of all, we we no longer have at least the thinking people. We don't have the luxury anymore of staying out of this fight. The fight has come to us. We need to do something about it. Now, you're right. If, you know, Joe White guy stands up there and says, listen, Muslims should believe this, that might be problematic. But I have I have a solution to that. Okay. How about if Joe White guy got up and said, you know what? I don't think terrorists uh, who, who act in the name of Islam are even Muslims. Just just as, as a thought now, you know, and, and I've tried this, you know, reverse takfirism, right? You don't want to do that. You don't want to say, you know, well, you guys are the ones that are not Muslim, but if Joe White guy got up and said, you know what, I've looked at the life of the prophet and for the life of me, I can't find where he did this, where he retaliated against women and children when he was fighting some army over there. I just can't see this. So, you know, and, and what happens from that? You see, the strategic uh, impact must be pro-Islamic. Well, you, you will not go if we if we continue this. Islam is the enemy. We're at war with Islam. With Islam, we gotta fight Islam. We're just aiding and abetting the adversary's narrative. Okay, this is not something we want to be doing. We want to take the uh, the sources away from them and say, you know what? I don't find these things in your sources. Can you can you somehow show us or you know where this was ever done? So maybe this is one way. Um, it's you know I I've seen it used where. You know, uh, one of our local politicians came and he was quoting verses from the book. 
And people were just like, wow, did you see that? He was quoting verses from the book. And, and that enough, you know, made them feel, you know what, we're being included. And this is a very powerful aspect of the counter narrative. Here's an interesting thought for you. Um, after an event in the UK, the British Prime Minister, Mr. Blair, uh, actually stood up and said, the root cause of terrorism is terrorists. Here in Canada, we had uh, Pierre Polliver, uh, also a member of Parliament, said uh, basically the same thing, saying the root cause of terrorism is terrorists. And then we had the uh, the Right Honourable Stephen Harper, the, the Prime Minister of Canada, words to the effect of that after a terrorist attack, it's not the time to go all sociological on the issue. And, I mean, one yeah, hates to... not to commit sociology. <laughs> not to commit sociology, yeah. So I, I sort of laughed. I mean, I think I know what Mr. Harper was trying to say, is he's, he's saying let's not go looking at individual cases of whether this guy's mummy didn't like him or whether he flunked grade three math or something. But I, he sort of left us with the impression that we shouldn't be, you know, committing sociology. And I would say, well, hang on just a second. We should be committing gross sociology here. We should understand what's going on culturally. We should understand what's going on politically, which is what drives most of this. We should understand the religious aspects of it, because this is what provides the justification. It provides the narrative. It provides the fundraising and that kind of thing. Um, and it strikes me that, no, we should be going like full, uh, full sociology here. Uh, in order to have an effect on this. So it almost strikes me as though uh, some of our politicians are telling us that ignorance is strength, whereas I would argue in this case that knowledge is everything. If you think about it from the perspective of, again, operationally, so uh, I can't remember who, it's a famous person quote um, in the intelligence uh, field, if you will, but I intelligence, he defined intelligence as knowing what's on the other side of the hill, right? So if you know, like you said, you know, should we care because Buddy's mommy didn't like him or whatever this and that? I see the terrorist who ends up at our doorstep. I want to see where he is on the other side of the hill. That's what my approach is. I want to know what his problems are, what the cultural situation is, who's saying what, what can we do down there rather than wait until, you know, he gets to the doorstep and blow something up. So, Mubin, you'd raised the issue of, you know, what happens when a terrorist shows up on the door of your mosque or shows up in your community? And one of the things I, I'm interested in, because I actually have a, a vast distrust of government as being capable of operating well at the tactical level, um, what I'd, I'd toss out to you as a, a question is, what role do you see local mosques, local churches, etc., playing in a de-radicalization either process or in a stopping people from moving from radical to extreme radical violence? Okay, so most recently I participated in the um, U.S. government's uh, report on terrorism 10 years later. I think it was like, where are we now? And uh, I submitted an article for them, and it, it encouraged two things, One was, or the use of two things. One is trusted intermediaries. Okay, these are people that they're working in the communities, working to uplift the situation of their community and their people. And these are, are people that have credibility on the ground. Okay, traction at the grassroots level. And you know what? You might even hear, you know, some, let's say, distasteful rhetoric. Or they, I mean, they may not have bought right into completely into the Western paradigm and the Western narrative. That's fine. Look, people are entitled to their views, whatever. 
But if at the core level they, they are against violence, they are encouraging pro-social modeling, saying that you should help the poor and the orphans and the widows and things like that, all well and good. And this is what we would call counter-radicalization. They are autonomously and automatically already disseminating a narrative that is not violent. Okay, and so we, we, let, we encourage that. And we let it just, you know, we let the Muslims do their thing. This is what Islam encourages, all well and good. Obviously, you're going to have those mosques, centers, organizations, people that, are, that don't agree with that, that are agitators and aggravators, and those are the people that we monitor and surveil. Simple. Um, so that's one part of it. A second part of it would be having subject matter experts. So subject matter experts would know the situation inside out. They know the theology. They know the, you know, the issues of, of, let's say, criminality of youth in the justice system, you know, have a broad understanding of the social issues facing. This is where you start to bring out the specialists. So if you have somebody, first of all, you know, a guy who is of this mentality, he may manifest radical behaviors, radical ideology, thoughts, whatnot, uh, in the public. And that can be dealt with. People will respond to him. The mosque organizations will bring speakers and, and try to refute or counter this message. But then when you have those people who are secretive about their activities, there's no way that the mosque is going to be able to find these guys and, and realize that this guy's a terrorist. Because a lot of these guys that go to mosques are not getting what they're looking for at the mosque. Because the mosque people, they're not going to get up there and say, yeah, we believe in terrorism. So it drives these kids away from the mosque and looking, you know, on the internet where they will find this stuff. So uh, what we need to do is at least uh, give, um, you know, moral support to the organization. So on the public level, you would have to show that, you know, we're working with the communities and da da da. One of the things that I, I hope that they took my advice and I certainly I saw them do this when the VRL plot happened in the, in Canada. Uh, this was a plot by two individuals who wanted to take a train to New York and blow something up, the train or something. And it was an imam who actually informed on them. And what the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the federal police here who are tasked with terrorism investigations, what they did is in their, uh, in their interview phase, when they did the press release, they had the members of the religious communities there with them. And this is a powerful message. It shows both the Muslim and non-Muslim communities that, okay, look, there is a partnership here. We are working towards this. This is telling Muslim people even that, listen, at the mainstream level, this is not something we accept. You can have your opposition to various political policy and foreign policy. That's great. You have a right to do this. And there are many non-Muslims that share your views. So to show this at the public level, at least for public consumption, that there is some cooperation. And then you start getting more specialized. So if you're dealing with, let's say, the RCMP has, or CSIS, you know, the Security Intelligence Organization, has picked up an individual and he's spouting these views and he's doing these things. You show up at his door and you talk to his parents and you show him pictures or you give him an example of a vetted audio intercept. Those parents, they're going to keep a double eye on this guy now. Okay? They're going to help you do your job. Now, that's one thing. Now, if the kid doesn't listen, right, and he keeps, you know, he keeps going on, great. Now, if he comes into the periphery, uh, you know, into the capture of policing agencies, and though you see, okay, you know what, maybe he needs to be talked out of it or whatever, 
you will then consult that list of subject matter experts you have. And you're gonna say to this guy, you're gonna say, all right, this subject matter expert is, we're gonna give a hand, we're gonna take a hands-off approach. You're gonna go and talk to him, and we already have an arrangement that you two are, we are not gonna share the information you two discuss, okay? Because look, you already have the information on this guy. If things go south and he continues on to commit criminal offenses, you have already done your investigation, you have your evidence. But in the case of sending them to the subject matter expert, you leave the SME alone to do his job. And that the, the, the subject matter of the, of the investigation understands that, okay, I'm not gonna get, you know, my, my, what I'm talking about is not gonna get reported up. And what you've done is you've created now a safe space, a second chance for this person. And you make it very clear that, listen, you know, after this guy, you're gonna see me at your door. And, and to let them know that this is the process that we're gonna take, and to at least have that process available to them. Just on the last point, I read in Australia what they've been doing is having national security forums where you bring people in to say, you know what, just talk openly what you feel and what you're thinking. You know what, you wanna cover your face because you feel you're gonna get monitored or picked up? Cover your face. We don't wanna know your name, we don't wanna know who you are. Just get it out, vent it out. Because if they feel that the government is listening and you see you know, government types sitting at the table, and, and in the UK I've seen this done as well. Look, you need to send guys who, who got thick skin who are ready to hear it from the community. Because once the community feels that, hey, these guys are listening to us, it really does a number on those people who are trying to say, see, these people don't listen to us. The only way they're gonna listen is through violence. And so these are some of the ways in which we can put together mechanisms that speak to this. We have the technology, we have the power, we have the resources, we have the brilliant minds, Muslim and non-alike, people who are on the same page, who understand our objectives. What we need to do is we need to implement. We really, really need to implement. And, and I just can't emphasize that anymore. Um, you know, I wasn't exaggerating or joking and I wasn't saying it for effect when I said, you and I, could come up with a program over the weekend that would actually, that can work, okay? And you know what, the time has come where we're well behind the curve. We cannot play catch up with an adversary that is so liquid. We need to be as liquid as them in order to play the game that they're playing. Simple as that, we need to move out. Excellent, we'll capture that as the last thought. I love that. Broken Mirrors. As Isabel Diveston at the University of Utrecht so elegantly noted, we exist now in a state of strategic ignorance. Her overall conclusion on Western strategic thinking can be distilled into this one statement. We can at present not but come to the conclusion that we are quite good at tactical disruption of our enemy instead of generating strategic effect. Let us be clear. We cannot kill our way out of this problem. It is a political struggle, and the strategic level is ideological. Yes, thinking is hard. For many, it may be easier to fall back on past experiences, use racism as a tool of analysis, or simply resort to worn-out narratives already in circulation. Thinking at the strategic level involves learning about your opponent and, perhaps with a greater degree of difficulty, learning about yourself. 
As Sun Tzu and so many others have noted, you have to know your opponent and yourself. Otherwise, you put yourself in peril. Osama bin Laden declared his war against Jews and Crusaders for the first time in 1996 and again in 1998. That was 17 years ago. The West in general has not engaged this problem at the strategic level. This is particularly clear in North America, where we are not even producing counter-radicalization programs, let alone challenging Al-Qaeda and its ideology on the battlefield of ideas and narratives. Do we lack the courage? Do we lack the skills to engage the men who live in caves and compounds? As noted, the primary weapon of the terrorist is fear. Fear is the weapon, and fear is the desired tactical end state of the terrorist campaign. At present, 12 years after the 9-11 attacks, we are living in a society increasingly governed through fear, threats, and information control. In short, instead of meeting Al-Qaeda head-on or disarming their weapons, we have instead chosen to plug an amplifier into their propaganda machine. We are losing. Broken Mirrors We're back at A&M Confectionery. Mark and Tom are wrapping up the latest Broken Mirrors episode. So guys, that brings us to the end of another interesting podcast. Mark, how would you wrap it all up? Well, Abby, it really comes down to a few simple points. We're too emotional about real and potential terrorist attacks, and that emotional reaction has been used to generate a lot of support for security theater. At the larger, operational level, we have tended to focus on tactical successes which, in turn, have often led to key strategic blunders. First, the extensive coverage of terrorist strikes has plugged the Erhabi message into Western media amplifiers, giving them a coverage that they could not hope to have ever achieved on their own. In effect, our reaction has made their message go viral. Second, the concentration on domestic defensive tactical moves has vastly inflated the budgets, sizes, and reach of many government agencies, giving rise to an increase in centralization. While we know that our best defense against terrorist attacks is frontline operators, such as the baggage handler in Glasgow, what our governments have given us is a centralized state organization similar to what made the Soviet Union the empire it is today. All of this leads us to one key question. Why don't we focus on the strategic and grand strategic effects of our responses? That's a great question, Mark. Tom, have you got any idea on where we go from here? In the next podcast, we'll examine strategic intelligence. This will include looking at some theory, the assessment capabilities, and some of the failures. What can intelligence do? And more importantly, what can't it do? And what does this mean to us as we continue to face a series of growing international and domestic threats? Broken Mirrors. This has been Broken Mirrors, Episode 3, Terrorism as Terrorism, for October 2013. A podcast covering issues in the intelligence, security, and military communities. For much more information about this episode and the series, please visit brokenmirrors.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, and listen to the extended material. Follow us on Google Plus and Facebook, and if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to plus one and like us there. The Descent and Dangerous 
are compositions generously provided by Kevin McLeod through Incompetech.com. Our thanks to our guest, Mubin Sheikh. This episode of Broken Mirrors was written and presented by our host and executive producer, Mark Tyrell, and our co-host, Tom Quiggin, producer Tim Riley, intern producer Abby Baruch, and associate producer Stephanie Bach, who is also responsible for elevating the general tone with her artwork. My name is Donna Moore. This podcast is copyright 2013, Broken Mirror Studios, and is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works, 2.5 Canada License.